1: presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts season two of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head
1: deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent
0: Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production
3: of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is
2: Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I wanted to start off by talking about something that may have come up in the past on the show before. I don't quite remember, but um, I don't think we've ever gone into great detail on it. So, there is this popular chemistry prank that uh, that goes something like this: you you approach somebody with a petition or a public service announcement, uh, and if I could do the the Donald Pleasants like spirit of dark and lonely water voice, I would do this. But uh, just imagine it. Can you imagine? I'm I'm Donald okay. Pleasant saying this to you. What if I told you there was a household chemical present in more than 98% of homes in America, which is used as an, an ingredient in everything from packaged foods to cleaning products to children's medicine. And yet this chemical has been proven to cause severe burns to the skin and mouth, can be lethal if it's inhaled, and is the primary constituent in acid rain. According to historical sources, this was the main ingredient in the poison that Socrates drank to commit suicide after his trial in Athens. It's so corrosive that it can eat holes in solid iron, and yet we expose our bodies to this chemical every time we have a cup of tea or take a shower. Studies have found that trace amounts of this compound linger in our decomposing bodies even for months after we die. It is so addictive that the average human cannot, at this point, survive more than a few days without receiving a dose. This chemical is called dihydrogen monoxide, and it has already been found in nearly every natural environment on Earth. And if we don't ban it soon, there will not be a single patch of the planet left uncontaminated. Now, there are a million versions of this, but a lot of them will ask people to kind of sign on and be like, oh, yeah, you know, we got to get this thing out of our out of our homes and all that.
0: Yeah, because it is clearly we're talking about something that's a threat to uh, the children, uh, to America, uh, to life as we know it. And it's it's funny
2: because when I think about this prank, I. So obviously the joke is that what it's talking about is water. Mm. And so the, it's a joke that works on several levels. For one, it's an example of how even technically true statements can be extremely misleading without being put in the proper context. Uh, and I think it's also just used to sometimes suggest that people should get like better education in chemistry and the natural sciences, which sure, you know, fair enough. Uh, I, I also wish I was better educated in chemistry, but I think it uh, on the other side, it, it does take advantage of something that is a totally justified anxiety that people have about chemistry in the natural world, and especially the modern world. Because when we make decisions about deadly risks, about physical cause and effect, you know, our intuitions and our knowledge about how things work are, are, are strongly biased toward perceiving physical threats within what you might call like the Newtonian physical domain like threats from big moving objects somewhere between the size of a pebble and a landslide but especially since the industrial revolution the world is also full of chemical threats that are really somewhat invisible in this respect like they don't really show up on the Newtonian physical domain and so we've got some natural defenses against chemical threats like this. We've got our senses of taste and smell, and we have some aversion reactions in like our digestive system, our respiration system. Like sometimes you detect a noxious chemical and you bar for you start coughing or something. Our, our bodies can can help detect and and reject things. But we all know by this point that there are in fact extremely dangerous chemicals that are essentially undetectable to our senses. Either because they have no strong smell or taste, or the relevant doses are, are, are so tiny that we wouldn't notice them before it's too late, or because maybe they don't have an effect until they've had until you've had extreme repeated exposure or consumed lots of chemicals. We're going to be talking about one of the latter today, and so this is the kind of compound that we're going to be getting into—a a chemical that has proven fascinating and very useful but also strangely dangerous depending on the context, a sort of doppelganger of water, the wetness of the shadow realm. Today, I wanted to talk about heavy water.
0: And it is heavy, literally heavy. But I want to want to say this is not to be confused with hard water. Uh, so right. if you're out there listening, we're talking about heavy water, not hard water. Hard water is just water with high mineral content. Oh, is that what it is? I, I think I literally didn't know that. Yeah, this is the one that, like, you know, can, can mess with uh, how your soap suds up, that sort of thing. Oh, okay. Uh, though some people like it because it makes their hair look good, right? Or at least they, Do they think, think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's one of those things I don't have a lot of, uh, of experience with it or really even knowledge of, of hard water. So when you brought up this topic, I initially thought you were talking about doing uh, an episode or episodes <laughs> about hard water. Uh, but it's not hard water. Again, heavy water.
2: The washers in your shower will really rust after this episode. (laughs) All right. So for the rest of the episode, we're going to discuss a few things that that we found interesting about heavy water, its role in the natural world and history, and maybe the question of whether you should drink it. Um, So uh, at the molecular level, as we all know, regular water is made of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. It's H2O. And this trifold structure makes for a really amazing and powerful polar molecule that acts as a kind of master solvent that makes life itself possible. Every cell in your body depends on the particular chemical properties of this molecule. Without H2O, nothing in the organic world works. Now, heavy water is an alternative form of the same molecule which relies on a different isotope of the hydrogen atom known as deuterium. Uh, A normal hydrogen atom, also known as protium, just to distinguish it from deuterium, is composed of two subatomic particles. So it's got a nucleus that is just one single proton and nothing else that has a positive charge. And then orbiting that, it's got one single electron, which has a negative charge. Deuterium adds a third element to the mix. It adds a single neutron to the nucleus of the hydrogen atom. Uh, now, again, this makes it an isotope of hydrogen. An isotope is a, is a version of an atom that has a different-than-usual number of neutrons in the nucleus. And a, nu- a neutron doesn't have a charge, but it does have mass. So an atom of deuterium is almost twice as heavy as an atom of no- ordinary hydrogen. Uh, Deuterium is a stable isotope, and it is found in nature. It's not something that's just a product of the Industrial Revolution or of nuclear reactors or something like that. It's found all throughout uh, water in the solar system. It's found all throughout Earth's oceans. Roughly one out of every 6,400 hydrogen atoms in the ocean is actually deuterium. So. If deuterium occurs in nature, you might wonder, well, where does it come from? With most other elements, you can trace their origin to some form of nucleosynthesis within stars or during high-energy events like supernovae. Uh, However, almost all of the deuterium found in nature is a leftover product of the Big Bang. These atomic nuclei are not generated by stars, or when they are, they're usually destroyed soon after they're created. They've been the way they are for 13.8 billion years. And on Earth, one major place to find hydrogen is bound up in water molecules. Uh, so, in most ways, deuterium behaves chemically the same as ordinary hydrogen. So, deuterium gets locked up into water molecules, uh, and it just floats around there in the ocean. Uh, the technical name for a water molecule with deuterium in place of hydrogen is deuterium oxide or D2O. So, if you ever see D2O written out, that means heavy water, water molecule with deuterium instead of regular hydrogen. It's also sometimes called deuterated water, uh, but more commonly, it's just known as heavy water. Now, as I've said, in many ways, deuterium behaves just like protium hydrogen. And so in many ways, heavy water blends in with and behaves like regular water. But not in every way, and a lot of what we're going to be doing in this episode is exploring some of the fascinating and historically relevant and
0: weird differences between regular water and heavy water. That's right. So uh, one good place to start here in the the history of the discovery of heavy water is to go back to 1913. That's when chemists Arthur Lamb and Richard Lean of New York University tried to define the density of pure water, and they kept getting varying results, which ultimately paved the road for the discovery of isotopes. that's so variant those are variants of particular chemical elements uh, due to differences in neutrons, and then also the discovery of heavy water itself. And this is key because cause again, heavy water isn't something that's you know entirely man-made or anything like that. It's in water. It just constitutes one part in uh, 4,500.
2: Uh, Yes, that's correct. Now, about that number, I was wondering about the ratios here because I saw – I've seen that that ratio 1 in 4,500, and I've also seen the ratio of 1 out of every Mm -hmm. 6,400. Like, for example, the 4,500, one important publication on the evidence for the existence of heavy hydrogen back in 1931, which was published in the journal Physical Review, was a letter by the American chemist Harold C. Urey – which pegged deuterium as one out of every 4,500 hydrogen atoms. But I've also seen it uh, published elsewhere that it's it's now thought that at least one out of every 6,400 or I think more, more like 6,420 or 6,450 water molecules in Earth's ocean are heavy water. Um, So I don't know if those numbers represent some kind of conflict or if one represents a genuine difference in what you'd find in the water molecules in the ocean versus what you'd find just in hydrogen more broadly. I'm not quite sure about that. But the, the point either way is that Uh, is that deuterium is found in nature but only in a a very small proportion of hydrogen and thus heavy water is found in nature but only in a very small proportion. It's one out of thousands of molecules.
0: Yeah so it's kind of like if we had a like a cash only society and you had some heavy nickels floating around there right (laughs) where the nickel itself like it's it's not it's not worth more. It's not. It's still just worth five cents, and factors into the figuring that way. But you can imagine scenarios where extra heavy nickels, in enough, uh, you know, if there are enough of them within a larger, uh, you know, amount of nickels, that could have an impact on things, etc. Or if you get into a situation, sort of this we'll discuss, where people are like, "Oh man, these heavy nickels are great. I've got to get more of them. Can I like sift them out of the existing uh, uh, cash population out of the <laughs> existing world nickels? Can I make normal?" Nickels into heavy nickels, etc.
2: That's very good. Yeah. And you could, I, I would imagine you'd run into unforeseen problems if you suddenly decided you wanted to base your entire economy on heavy nickels. Yeah. Or, I don't know, maybe a third to 40% of your economy. Uh, that'll tie into something we get into in a minute. So I mentioned him just a minute ago, the, the American chemist Harold C. Urey. Uh, I hope I'm saying his name right. U R E Y. Uh, he, he's a very important figure in the discovery of deuterium. He usually gets credit along with his collaborators for proving the existence of deuterium uh, through spectroscopic experiments in 1931 and he received the Nobel Prize for his discovery in 1934. But uh, I thought it would be useful to just look at a couple of the physical properties of of heavy water. So. One of the key differences between heavy water and ordinary water is that heavy water is literally heavier. Because of the extra neutrons in the deuterium, you remember a a deuterium atom is almost twice as heavy as a regular hydrogen atom. Because of that, D2O is about 10% heavier than an equal quantity of regular water. And you might wonder, wait a minute, why only 10% heavier rather than double the weight? Well, remember, Oxygen with eight protons and eight neutrons makes up the bulk of the mass of a normal water molecule. It's got oxygen and then the lighter hydrogen atoms. So you're only increasing the weight of uh, two of the three atoms and the two smaller ones in the water molecule. So, so it's 10% heavier. And this results in some very interesting party trick potential. For example... Regular ice always floats in water, but with deuterium, if you make a heavy water ice cube, it will sink in water because it's got a greater density than the surrounding water. Also, heavy water is more viscous than regular water. It's a little bit. Uh, it's going to be a little bit more like a like a a, a jelly, or maybe not to a, a you know physically perceptible extent if you were to hold it in your hands. But it is more viscous, which would probably have measurable effects if, say, the oceans were entirely made of deuterium.
0: Yes, and this is this is a, a great question uh, that uh, that had been asked on the internet already. I think it originally showed up in a, as a Quora question. Oh, what would the ocean be like if it was made out of heavy water? And uh, and is is sometimes the case on Quora. Uh, You had a a really insightful answer pop up. This one from Josh Velson, chemical engineering consultant for bio and petrochemicals. And uh, it it was such a neat answer that it was actually featured on Slate as well. Uh, So I recommend checking that out. But I I want to touch on some of the main points that Velson makes. And I want to stress, this would be if there was a magical instant change, you know, like snap your fingers. Now our oceans are just all heavy water. So it's not a realistic scenario, but it's one of those thought experiment scenarios that I think helps to underline what we're talking about here with heavy water and how it affects, it would affect, you know, various systems. So, first of all, since any given portion of the water uh, out there in the oceans would be 10.6% heavier, uh, Velson says that anything swimming outside of its pressure zone would basically be instantly crushed now we've discussed on the show before how if you take certain deep sea organisms and you bring them up into shallower waters uh, you have some exploding effects that take place and likewise mm-hmm. if you take something from shallower waters and plunge it down into the depths there can be a crushing scenario but this just means everything uh, th- these sort of things would be uh, uh, far more exaggerated
2: yeah, I didn't even consider this, but so if the ocean is suddenly about 10 percent heavier at, at the molecular level, the pressure at the bottom of the ocean would also be a lot higher. So yeah, so you're suddenly down there, and it's like a, somebody's just like put an extra backpack on you.:
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, uh, Velson says that everything floating in the ocean would displace more mass, so ships would need extra ballast to stay at the same level in a heavy water ocean. And then this is interesting. Velson writes, quote, A large portion of the oceans would freeze instantly due to a higher freezing point. This would release a lot of heat into the atmosphere in the polar regions, causing a massive imbalance and resulting in some pretty spectacular polar cyclones, unquote. Wow. And then on top of this, uh, the mass of the planet would change. This would alter <laughs> the, the moon's orbit. And basically, it would just mess with weather and climate in a major way, resulting in earthquakes, tidal waves, rising sea levels. But of course, to change the ocean is to change life as well. So we'll come back to this and I'll come back to uh, um, Velson's points in a bit. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, take good care, and we'll see you there
2: all right, so I know what you out there are already wondering, should I drink it heavy water <laughs> or should i should I you know get a big bucket of it and just gulp, gulp, gulp?
0: It sounds like the the ultimate metal head uh like bottled water, right heavy water, oh yeah, they would sell
2: it at the metal shows. that's really good, yeah. Uh, So there's actually a great article about the history of drinking heavy water in the journal Nature Chemistry by the American chemist Michelle Fransel. We we actually quoted a piece by her uh, at some point in the past year because she wrote uh, a thing that we did for Cupid's Lead and Arrow. That was it. She wrote an article about uh, the history of sugar of lead as it was used in ancient Rome that was really good. Uh, but this piece is called "The Weight of Water," so it was published in Nature Chemistry in 2019. So she begins the story in 1913, talking about when the Hungarian chemist George de hevesy was visiting the lab of Ernest Rutherford in Manchester, England. Uh, now, eventually, both of these scientists would have Nobel prizes for their discoveries, but uh, at this point. Rutherford was the was the senior scientist and Hevishy was more of a, a young student, you know, he, he was still learning the ropes. And Rutherford had given Hevishy a task here. He wanted to get him to take a quantity of lead and find a way to chemically isolate all of the radioactive atoms of what was then known as radium D from the lead in this sample. And Hevesy was unable to find a way to do this, because uh, what they were calling radium D was actually not radium, but a radioactive isotope of lead that is now known as lead-210. But in the process of working on this problem that he never ended up solving, Heveshi realized a potentially very interesting implication of this failure— When a sample contains a radioisotope, a radioactive atom within a mass of other atoms, you can use these radioactive atoms to track the movement of a chemical through a biological system. So, for example, if you're curious how lead in the soil is taken up by bean plants and then distributed around the plant's body – you can spike the soil with radioactive isotopes of lead. So the plant will take them up because they're still lead. It'll treat them the way it normally treats lead. But because they're radioactive, they're radioisotopes, you can track what the plant is doing them with them. You can use equipment to track exactly how these isotopes are metabolized through the roots, the stem, the leaves, uh, and you can also use these radioactive tracers to track the absorption and elimination of elements in animal bodies. So you could find out, well, when when somebody ingests lead, does the body immediately purge it or does the lead stick around? Or how long does it take the body to purge it? Uh, where does it go in the body? And it turns out you can use radioactive tracers to find out lots of things about what's going on in the body, not just in basic biological research, but actually in medicine. Uh, Radioactive tracers are used in medicine all the time. Now, here I wanted to mention a couple of uh, anecdotes I came across about Heveshi that are really interesting. He seems like a a kind of mythic hero in a way, a sort of Romulus or Gilgamesh figure, (laughs) or maybe we should say Bilgamesh, Uh, Bilgamesh to Heveshi. Uh, So there were a couple of the most popular stories about his life that that I I, I couldn't pass up mentioning. The the first one I found recounted in a short historical article in the Journal of Nuclear Cardiology, and it concerns how Heveshi first demonstrated that tracer principle that I was just talking about. So this is by Strauss et al. uh, uh, from 2017. And the authors here talk about uh, while Heveshi was working in Manchester in this lab in the early 1910s, He was living at a boarding house that had been recommended to him by Rutherford, by the way. So his boss is like, hey, live in this place. And apparently it was just miserable there. Uh, Hevishy started noticing that uh, he didn't just hate his lodgings. He really hated the food at his boarding house. Uh, He had a sensitive stomach. He suffered from indigestion. And he started to suspect something was going on. What he thought was happening was that. Uh, now, this, this is an old school boarding house, right? So they, they give you not just a bed, but a bed and your daily meals. And he started to suspect that his landlady was recycling food. So, you know, she makes you a grade R beef roast mm-hmm. and then you eat a little bit of it and you don't finish it. There's some still on your plate she suspected that the landlady was just taking whatever you couldn't finish off of your plate and then taking it back to the kitchen and then mixing it up and serving it again in some disguised form the next day.
0: Well, that's just being a good mom. (laughs)
2: You know, you can appreciate you know refraining from food waste here, but Heveshi was not happy with it because I think the problem was the beef was already suffering from freshness problems Mm, and was was being recycled to the point of possible food poisoning. (laughs) So uh, at some point, uh, he he called he 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 brought this up with his landlady uh, to read from the article here quote. His suggestion that she serve freshly prepared meat more than once a week was met with indignation. How could he, she insisted, accuse her of serving anything but the freshest of ingredients? Uh, So Heveshi decided to put this claim to the test using a really amazing (laughs) method. In fact, using some of the exact same techniques that he had just been discovering recently in Rutherford's lab uh, that we were just talking about. So one Sunday – When Heveshi had eaten as much as he could, he secretly spiked the food left on his plate with a number of radioactive isotopes. And I'm just going to read from the article here. A few days later, the electroscope he smuggled into the dining room revealed the presence of the tracer, radioactive hash. Confronted with the irrefutable evidence, all the landlady could do was exclaim, "'This is magic.'" The first radio tracer investigation had successfully followed leftover meat from the Sunday meal to the kitchen meat grinder into the hash pot and back into the dining room table. So when in doubt, you know, spike, <laughs> spike your food with radio isotopes.
0: Truly, this is one of the great
2: adventures in science right here. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a, a much higher stakes one, though. Uh, that's a story uh, about Heveshi's life from World War Two. So. Uh, there's, a, there's a great NPR piece about this from 2011 by Robert Krulwich that I'm relying on here. Uh, I can't say the title or it will ruin the story, okay. but it goes like this. So in the summer of 1940, Hevishy was working at an institute in Copenhagen in the laboratory of the great physicist Niels Bohr. Uh, Denmark had been invaded by the Nazis earlier that year, I think that was in April of 1940, and it was now occupied with German troops raiding homes and marching in the streets, and and they just arrived in Copenhagen later in the summer when the story takes place. So at the time, Niels Bohr is in possession of two gold medals. They are Nobel Prizes, in fact, which are made of 23-karat gold. But they're not his. They belong to two German physicists, uh, Max von Lauer and James Franck, who were both at risk within Germany. Franck himself was Jewish, and von Lauer was not, but he was known for his uh, very fierce opposition to the Nazi party. Now, they had sent their Nobel medals secretly to Bohr's Institute for Safekeeping. Uh, but here we're faced with a problem. At the time... Germany was at war, and it was actually illegal to remove gold from the country. So, by sending their gold medals to Bohr's lab, Franck and von Lauer had committed what would probably be a capital offense back home. And worse, it couldn't really be covered up because their names were engraved on mm-hmm. the gold medals. So Bohr and his colleagues were thinking, "Oh no! If if our institute is raided, and uh, it probably will be, Bohr knew his lab would be searched because it was known to be a safe haven for Jewish scientists and and other people opposed to the Nazis who were fleeing uh, fleeing the Nazis. They had come to his institute, and now they were occupied. Um, so Bohr realized they had to do something to hide these metals because if they were discovered, you know, the, these scientists back in Germany would probably be put to death. So Bohr and his colleague at the time, Hevishi, discussed their options. They thought about maybe we could bury it, bury it in the gardens, but they worried that the Nazis would dig all over the grounds and probably find them. And then Hevishi came up with an amazing solution, uh, a, literally a solution, dissolve the metals – Uh, This was not easy since gold is not very reactive. It's difficult to dissolve. But Heveshi knew that there was a solution that would do the trick known as aqua regia, which is a mixture of hydrochloric acid and nitric acid in a three to one ratio usually. Uh, So here I just want to read from the NPR piece. De Deheveshi in his autobiography says because gold is quote exceedingly unreactive and difficult to dissolve it was slow going but as the minutes ticked down both metals were reduced to a colorless solution that turned faintly peach and then bright orange. By the time the Nazis arrived both awards had liquefied inside a flask that was then stashed on a high laboratory shelf. Then, says science writer and radiolab contributor Sam Keen in his book The Disappearing Spoon, quote, when the Nazis ransacked Bohr's Institute, they scoured the building for loot or evidence of wrongdoing, but left the beaker of orange aqua regia untouched. Heveshey was forced to flee to Stockholm in 1943, but when he returned to his battered laboratory on VE Day, he found the innocuous beaker undisturbed on a shelf. And there's a codage of the story that's pretty interesting. So after the war was over, Heveshi again used chemistry to re extract the same gold from the beakers, had that sent to Stockholm where it was reformed into new metals that were again presented to the original recipients.
0: Huh. Interesting. I mean, kind of unnecessary, I guess, that the same gold actually go back to create the you know, the, the, the same awards, but still neat for sure. It's got that magic
2: thing. You know, people always want to like melt down a symbol of one thing and turn it into another. I guess in this case, it was melting down a symbol of one thing and turning it back into itself, but still has some of the same kind of symbolic uh, weight there.
0: Yeah, there is kind of a you know sitcom level um, (laughs) circular motion to the whole thing, right? We come back at the end of the day, we still have the same awards again. They've been reformed into the same thing we're familiar with. Yeah, totally. But uh, coming
2: back from, from those anecdotes, uh, so, so, so now we got an idea of Heveshi, the character, Heveshi, the mythic hero. Uh, his life actually also ties into heavy water. So there was one day in Manchester in the early 1910s where Heveshi was having a cup of tea with the English physicist Henry Moseley. And at the time, Heveshi was pursuing his radioactive tracer experiments with plants, uh, the ones that I was talking about earlier, like the Mm -hmm. bean plants and seeing how they take up lead and and all that. Uh, So the idea was, again, that you could learn how elements from the soil are metabolized in plant bodies by studying this with, with radioactive tracers. And apparently... Heveshi and Mosley were getting all riled up about this idea, and Hevishy posed a question about whether it would be possible to ever mark the water molecules in a cup of tea with some kind of tracer that could track those molecules throughout the human body. And at the time, they did not know of a way to do this with water molecules, but a couple of decades later... Chemistry would come around with an answer in the form of discoveries by Harold uh, Urey, which we talked about previously of heavy water. So n- not long after the existence of heavy water based on deuterium was confirmed in the lab, a number of world-class scientists decided well to hell with it, you know, let's let's put it in our mouths and see what <laughs> happens. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a different time of experimental uh, regimes. And it's also funny because if you read the scientific papers of the time, uh, often they're just like a paragraph long. They're just like, here's what we did, here's what it tasted like, nobody died. So in the year 1934, Harold Urey sent George de Hevesy a sample of water that had been enriched to 0.5% deuteration. So remember, 99.5% of this water is still the regular stuff, but this would nevertheless represent a much higher concentration of heavy water than a normal glass.
0: Right. And that percentage is worth keeping in mind for later when we're talking about higher percentages in the human body. Right.
2: So Hevesi and his assistant, Eric Hoffer, decided to test the effects of a deuterium-enriched aquatic environment on goldfish. So they took 20 small goldfish and immersed them temporarily, but for steadily increasing periods of time in the deuterated water. Uh, and so to read from Fransel here, quote, The overcrowded goldfish rapidly exchanged water with the deuterated water in the bowl, which became measurably less dense noting no change in the behavior of the 0.2% deuterated goldfish, though how this might be assessed with so many goldfish stuffed into a small glass for up to 15 hours at a time is unclear. (laughs) Heveshi apparently concluded it was safe to drink the heavy water and proceeded to run the experiment he'd described to Mosley 20 years before.
0: (laughs) So the the rationale here is, okay, it seems good enough for a goldfish, good enough for me, I'm going to try it too.
2: Well, but I like that Francil brings up Again, like I, I, it's not exactly clear how they were judging what the effects on goldfish were, given that they were like cramming lots of goldfish into a very small container of water. Yeah. I guess they observed that the goldfish were not dead.
0: Right. I, I mean, if you're looking for them to like die instantly or explode or something. Yeah.
2: So it's not clear exactly whether Heveshi or Hofer did the drinking, but one of them did. And uh, they consumed a couple of the samples. They collected the heavy water from the drinker's urine, distilled it, and measured its density. And uh, uh, about 20 minutes after the chugging, deuterated water started showing up in the urine. And in this experiment, Heveshi and Hofer found that the average molecule of swallowed water lingers in a human body a lot longer than it lingers in goldfish. In humans, the metabolic half-life of a dose of water is about nine days, according to this test at least. But the big question, I guess, is were they okay? Well, if not, they didn't report anything. There was no sickness, also no notes about what the water tasted like. So after Hevesy and Hofer published their paper on deuterium as a tracer for water in animal bodies, another professor decided to follow up by by addressing the question of toxicity head on. Now, obviously, whichever one of the uh, the, the the H's drank the heavy water was all right, but this was in an extremely diluted form. It was a small amount of it. A professor named Klaus Hansen of Oslo University performed a toxicity test on himself in front of an audience, including the press and a bunch of medical professionals uh, with equipment standing by, like, stomach pumps and stuff. And uh, Hansen swallowed what Francil characterizes as a, quote, scant teaspoonful of heavy water. Now, it turned out the life support equipment was not needed. Hansen was fine, though he did report what he called a dry burning sensation after swallowing. Um, And then uh, Harold C. Urey at Columbia University and his colleague uh, Gino Faella decided to follow up on this by staging a blind taste test. So this is going to be like the Pepsi challenge, (laughs) but for deuterium. Uh, And they they published the results in 1935 in a paper called Concerning the Taste of Heavy Water. As I mentioned, sometimes papers were very short back then, so I can actually just read the entire second paragraph of, of their paper here. All right, tasting notes for heavy water. Right. Okay, so here's what they said. In order to make the experiment as objective as possible, a third person in a different room prepared the samples to be tasted. Each of us was then given two identical watch glasses, one containing one cubic centimeter of ordinary distilled water and the other the same amount of pure heavy water, especially prepared for biological experiments. One of us kept each sample in his mouth for a short time to make sure of its taste, then spat it out. The other repeated the same procedure, but swallowed the water. Neither of us could detect the slightest difference between the taste of ordinary distilled water and the taste of pure heavy water. It might be mentioned in this connection that one cubic centimeter of water is not too small an amount to taste properly, since both of us could detect plainly the characteristic flat taste of distilled water in both cases. It may be concluded, therefore, that pure deuterium oxide has the same taste as ordinary distilled water. Okay. Um, now, this is funny because I've read some more recent studies. I think one that was that I found in a preprint server that has not been published yet that claims that they've redone this taste test and decided that, uh, that heavy water is noticeably sweeter. So they're disagreeing with Yuri and Fiala here. I'm, I'm not sure uh, how to sort that out. But one of the things about these taste tests that Francil points out is that they were ridiculously expensive <laughs> because at the time, the scant teaspoonful of heavy water that Klaus Hansen swallowed probably cost the equivalent of about $100,000 in current U.S. dollars. Wow. Uh, so I don't know if that's a good use of <laughs> 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 experimental resources. Uh, it's, probably, it's probably not surprising that Yuri found these human experiments wasteful, uh, even though he did one. After all, so like if a scant teaspoonful is $100,000 worth of product, you know, and a teaspoon of water is a vanishingly small sample compared to how much water is in an adult human body, it's probably just going to be prohibitively expensive to do toxicity experiments on a human being with, with this stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, this seems even above and beyond uh, arrakis prices for water, right? I mean, this is crazy.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You make yourself a heavy water still suit.
0: Don't, don't lose
2: a drop. So if you were trying to understand the physiological effects of heavy water at scale, you would need to test it on a much smaller organism. And eventually some research of this was carried out to figure out exactly what deuterated water does to plant and animal bodies. The, the, more research of this kind was done throughout the 20th century. A study in 1936 by Henry Barber and Jane Trace found that heavy water was in fact quite lethal if it could replace about 40% of the water in in the body. And uh, I think this was determined with, with small mammals like mice. Um, and this is sometimes shorthanded to about one third. There, there are various percentages that are given – yeah. but basically you do not want one third to you know half of your body water replaced by deuterated water. This creates I- immense problems. Um, replacement of ordinary water with heavy water seems to kill the mammalian body once you pass certain thresholds by primarily interfering with mitosis or cell division. And in this way, its effects are strangely similar to what you would see with large doses of chemotherapy. Metabolism slows down and cells stop dividing and reproducing. And this can lead to, of course, sterility in in the reproductive system, uh, but also interior degradation of the function of multiple organs throughout the body and a kind of cytotoxic collapse before death. Uh, The chemical principle that's responsible for this is known as the kinetic isotope effect. So I'll try to do the simple version as best I understand it. Again, deuterium is chemically pretty much the same as regular hydrogen. It's got the same charge, the same proton and electron. But because of the heavier nucleus, um, even though it will usually engage in the same chemical reactions, there is a tendency for the changes in the isotopic composition to affect the rate of chemical reactions. So even though D2O is chemically a lot like regular H2O – It's heavy hydrogen forms stronger bonds with the oxygen atoms in the water molecules than regular protium does. And this means it's harder than usual to break up heavy water molecules into their constituent parts, which in turn means lots of chemical reactions happen more slowly. And this starts to consistently slow down chemical reactions throughout the body if you replace too much of the water in your body with D2O. If there's too much of it and chemical reactions get slowed down too much. all hell breaks loose. cells don't divide and there there's a kind of there are kinds of systemic collapse that that just come from this. So heavy water makes for a very strange and peculiar type of poison. You know, from everything I've been reading, it's something that is usually harmless at doses of even probably a glass full. But if you can really load somebody up with heavy water to the extent that it replaces somewhere between 25 and 50% of the water in their body, it will absolutely kill them in a horrific way.
0: It is a ridiculously expensive way to try and assassinate somebody. So I'm I'm kind of shocked it hasn't been done in a James Bond film. This seems perfect for the Bond world. That's a very good point. Now, I think heavy water is not going to be nearly as expensive as it was when those first taste
2: test experiments were done, but mm-hmm. still, I mean, yeah, it would be it would be a needlessly elaborate uh, method of assassination.
0: I mean, surely one of those CSI shows considered it at some point. Maybe they did it. I mean, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from anybody if if, they, if you've seen a heavy water murder episode of some sort of episodic uh, detective show. I'd like to to hear about it. Well, this does
2: tie into one particular example that Fransel cites in her article. Uh, that uh, no one was killed, fortunately, in this example, but there was an instance of of heavy water poisoning. Though the heavy water turns out to be not necessarily the uh, the important part of the story. So uh, there was an Associated Press article from March 5th, 1990 that Francil cites, and I went and looked up the original article. It's called Power Plant Worker Accused of Spiking Cooler with Radioactive Water. Uh, This happened in in Canada. So it's a dateline, New Brunswick. And uh, uh, just to read the lead here, quote, a nuclear power plant worker was charged Monday with spiking a lunchroom cooler with radioactive water that eight men drank before the contamination was discovered. The eight who drank the contaminated water last month at the Point Lepro plant have, have a slightly higher chance of getting cancer, officials said, but are in no immediate health danger. Uh, and the article goes on to characterize this as probably some kind of practical joke gone awry, it does not seem like a very good joke. Again, no one died immediately from this, though the person who spiked the water was charged with, with a crime. Uh, and this does tie into an interesting misconception, which is that heavy water is naturally radioactive. And heavy water, it, it's not. Deuterated water is not naturally radioactive unless it's been made radioactive by, say, by, for example, like being the coolant around a nuclear reactor. Um, now, water with hydrogen-3, you remember... Uh, Heavy water is uh, the kind we've been talking about. Is with hydrogen two, deuterium water with hydrogen three, also known as tritium, would be another story. It is definitely radioactive in all its forms, but far, far less common in nature. So, if you were to drink heavy water, it would not naturally be a radioactivity risk. It would be this poisoning risk if you drank enough of it and it, it replaced enough of the water in your body.
0: Right, and and that kind of brings us back to that Velsin, uh Uh, Q&A that was published in Slate that I mentioned earlier, you know, you instantly replace the the world's oceans with heavy water. We have these immediate concerns, uh, but then obviously that water is going to make its way into organisms. And so Velson writes, you know, that basically the, the biological concerns here would start out Uh, milder. You know, it'd be more about bloat and weight, lower blood pressure. But by the time you reach like the 25 percent heavy water mark in uh, particularly in humans, we would be just uh, irreversibly sterile. And then certainly by the time you hit that 50 percent point, I mean, that's that's definitely in the fatal zone. Uh, So, you know, Velson writes, you know, that heavy water makes uh, uh, eukaryotic cell division impossible due to the impact on the uh, mitotic spindle. So most multicellular eukaryotic life would just snuff it extinct within a few years.
2: Yeah, I was looking at some uh, some possible exceptions. There are, interestingly, uh, organisms that are heavy water tolerant or much more heavy water tolerant than other organisms. Uh, so prokaryotes, I think, in general, are more tolerant of, of being exposed to deuterated water than eukaryotes are. Uh, right. Bacteria are going to be Better off, and maybe they could just like you know re-evolve new complex life forms in the uh, in the deuterated world. I wonder if they would be like slower moving life forms because the deuterated Earth would just like have slower chemical reactions in general.
0: Well, you know, I did a lot. I was thinking the same thing, so I was looking around a lot to find some examples or <laughs> you know some sci-fi uh, visions of what um, heavy water organisms might consist of, and and I was not able to find anything, but I did find some some stuff about the idea of uh, of, of heavy water organisms that have, would, would be cultivated for their use in magnetic uh, resonance studies. And mm. these were proposed back in the late 1960s. These would, again, be cultivated versions of natural world, world organisms that, um, in their heavy form, would not be found anywhere in the natural world. So as proposed by Katz and Crespi in, uh, in the journal Science back in 1966, there are various uses and products one could derive from their cultivation. Higher plants and even simple organisms, like you mentioned, uh, can resist uh, full um, uh, deuteration. But there are possibilities for other life forms. So, so some of the main benefits here would be their use in studying uh, uh, heavy water isotopes, you know, following the path of hydrogen in biological systems. Uh, Deuterated algae, for instance, which we've had since the 1960s, have a useful role in the study of photosynthesis. But um yeah, I wish I could have found something about like the idea of the deuterated man, heavy water <laughs> heavy water elephants or something like that, but uh, I didn't find anything.
2: That's how we get middle Earth. Uh, there's yeah. <laughs> a, sort of a re- uh, chemical uh, recycling event and, and and ended up there. Um, I did find one example that I was looking at. I, apparently, there's some kind of nematode worm that can survive hmm. and reproduce in almost pure uh, pure deuterated water.
0: Huh, interesting.
2: There's always a worm. That should be a slogan of this show. You know, whatever you're saying about biology, it's like it's true in most cases, but there's always a worm. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love Listen to The Daily Show, ears edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there's another way that uh, heavy water has been very important, and that's in the history and development of nuclear technology and um, in developing nuclear reactors and in the history of the development of nuclear weapons.
0: Yeah, this is all interesting. You know, looking at the, the 20th century, certainly um, a time in which our understanding of chemistry greatly evolved. And then, of course, we began to understand uh, nuclear fission as well. And scientists uh, around this time, so nuclear fission uh This was uh, discovered uh, in December of 1938. Around this time, scientists began to realize that heavy water could be used as what is called a moderator. So in nuclear reactors, a moderator slows down the neutrons to speeds at which fission can occur. Uh, It helps to create the conditions in which a true fission chain reaction can occur and keep going. So... A nuclear reactor using heavy water can make use of naturally occurring uranium rather than enriched uranium. Uh, Because, again, you can't just kick a bunch of naturally occurring uranium and produce an atomic blast. So basically, uh, scientists in Germany and in the UK, they realized kind of early on what heavy water could potentially do. Now, an interesting wrinkle here is that the U.S. atomic weapons program ended up depending far more on graphite as a moderator than heavy water. But the Germans came to believe that graphite wouldn't cut it, so they focused on heavy water. Um, Heavy water was obtained by um, electrolysis, and a leading facility producing it was Norway's uh, Vemork facility, So the French and the Germans both attempted to buy the entire stock. Uh, I think the Germans had purchased some, uh, but then uh, the the French and the Germans both were like, we want to buy it all. And aware of the military possibilities, Norway, which was at that point neutral, sold it all to France and and, uh, it was smuggled out of the country in 1940. That same year, however, the Germans uh, took Norway and the plant became a military target for the allies, because, of course, the whole situation here is it's suspected that Germany is working on creating an atomic weapon.
2: Right. And so the idea and they didn't know exactly how things would shake out, but it looked at the time like heavy water might be a really crucial element in achieving nuclear weapons. Right. And so there was obvious uh, like terror among the allies that like oh no, if they get their hands on too much heavy water, they could build a nuclear reactor that could potentially lead to weapons capabilities or whatever before we achieve them. So it's it's again it's a one ring scenario. It's like, you know, give us the weapon of the enemy, don't let them have it.
0: Right, yeah. So as a result, this facility was targeted five different times um, by the Norwegian Special Forces, by the RAF, by the British Army, by the U.S. Air Force, and by the Norwegian Resistance. And these were efforts, again, to try and prevent the Germans from developing an atomic weapon. Operation uh, Gunnerside was of particular note. In this one, four Norwegian agents parachuted into the area. They joined up with four special agents, uh, special forces agents that had been deployed earlier uh, on a recon mission, and they all attacked the plant, destroying the heavy water section of the plant and costing the Germans something like 500 kilograms of heavy water. I
2: think these missions had no casualties also.
0: Well, the, the, these two missions that I mentioned here had no casualties. There was uh, one of the attempts um, ended up uh, uh, involving a plane crash, and the uh, the agents involved were executed mm. by the Germans. Yeah, but um, but th- this particular mission, I think, yeah, you're correct on. Uh, now, it would ultimately turn out that the Germans were not nearly as close as suspected, um, but this certainly put a dent in their efforts. Basically, the immediate demands of the war combined with the, um, the efforts uh, uh, by resistance and special forces here basically kept the nuclear program of the Ger- of Germany in a kind of preliminary stage. But, of course, the Allies did not know this. They just, they just knew that some effort was underway and it needed to be uh, curbed. Now, in more
2: recent years, there are all kinds of interesting uses that have been discovered for deuterium and, uh, and heavy water that might not have even been imagined early on, or maybe some of which were imagined early on, but nobody knew if they would ever be achieved. One of the examples that I was just recently looking at is this interesting idea of deuterated drugs. Apparently, mm-hmm. the first one of which was approved by the FDA in 2017, but it's an idea that's been around for
0: a long time. Yeah, I think the first patent was granted back in the 1970s. Um, So, yeah, it's interesting. Now, before anyone assumes this has anything to do with turning your water heavy or any sort of thing, the basic idea of these um, uh, deuterated drugs is that the resulting drug has a longer half-life due to lower rates of metabolism. So half-life, when we're talking about medication, it's it's the point at which it loses 50% of its effectiveness inside your body. So this isn't related to, say, shelf life. Uh, It's about how the drug functions in the body itself. Right. So it
2: can like act more slowly over a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, And it's funny because we've talked about several different ways now. Essentially, one of the ways that uh, deuterated water will kill you if you drink too much of it is it slows down metabolism and chemical reactions, cell division in your body to a point where you can't survive anymore uh but there are more moderated forms of consuming heavy water that people have long speculated whether rightly or not i mean this is still an open question as to whether there's anything to these ideas but have speculated that well maybe you could use this to slow down chemical reactions in the body in a good way in a way that's actually desirable such as in uh, life extension or you know human hibernation or things like that uh so i wanted to read a apart from uh, in Francel's article, where she says, "Mountebanks have been promoting heavy water as a panacea almost since the moment Yuri isolated the first sample. Even eminent chemists have not been immune. In a 1937 Popular Science article, chemist James Kendall opined that the elderly might extend their lives by drinking heavy water." Quote, the heavy water drinker's reactions would probably be slowed and possibly his mental processes also. But who wants to be fast
0: at 60? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, you know, 60 was, was a different 60 in 1937, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, so the idea here is just d- don't drink too much of it. Drink a, a balance of it and you'll be OK. It's kind of a never finish your second drink uh, approach to life. Uh,
2: yes. Now, I want to be extremely clear. We are not advocating that anyone do this, nor no. claiming that this would be effective, but it is, it is something that people have continued to speculate about. So the one article that, uh, Francis references in her article is by uh, Zion Lee and Michael P. Snyder in bio essays in 2016 that is a, it's a speculative article that explores this question. It's called quote, can heavy isotopes increase lifespan studies of relative abundance in various organisms reveal chemical perspectives on aging. Now they cite again, some of the same stuff we've been talking about the, the, the chemistry of the kinetic isotope effects, which slow down chemical reactions. And this sort of slows down all kinds of processes that happen in the body that are in a way that they are metabolic processes that are associated with the advancing, of age. And so the authors here write, quote, "...previous isotope analyses have recorded pervasive enrichment or depletion of heavy isotopes in various organisms, strongly supporting the capability of biological systems to distinguish different isotopes. This capability has recently been found to lead to general decline of heavy isotopes in metabolites during yeast aging." Conversely, supplementing heavy isotopes in growth medium promotes longevity. Whether this observation prevails in o- other organisms is not known, but it potentially bears promise in promoting human longevity.
0: Hmm. Uh,
2: so some of the ideas explored here, the implications would be that you could possibly ingest certain amounts of heavy water to trigger um, uh, to trigger a sort of state of hibernation, which could be useful in, say, like interstellar travel. Francil points that out. Mm-hmm. Um, But also, uh, as as summarized by Fransel, basically their observation is that, quote, yeast models have showed that heavier isotopes, including deuterium, become depleted in organisms with aging. They suggest it is possible that periodically supplementing the diet with appropriate isotopologues could extend human lifespan. So if, like, you you tend to lose deuterium as you get older, maybe supplementing the body with some, some, you know, a little bit of extra heavy water, a little bit of extra deuterium. Might do you some good again, totally speculative, not proven uh but there are there are some interesting tidbits in other organisms that suggest the possibility here,
0: huh, so in the future, the idea of say heavy water supplements are possible, even if you end up having to buy them from goop as opposed to your uh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: anywhere else. Right. I mean, I guess the question would be like is this going to end up being science-based medicine or is this going to end up being some some pseudoscientific miracle cure hawked on, you know, whatever conspiracy theory show. Um, but either way, you it's going to be for sale.
0: Now, an interesting thing I ran across, uh, Joe, was that um, apparently by, by you can look at Mars. And by looking at the ratio between deuterated water and normal water on Mars, scientists are able to get a better picture of how much water Mars lost in the past. Oh. So basically the more heavy water present, which is harder to lose, then the more water you lost over time. So to come back to that uh, idea of like heavy nickels, and uh, normal nickels mm-hmm. in your, like, personal Scrooge McDuck bank. <laughs> if you were afraid that leprechauns were stealing your nickels and leprechauns are incapable of carrying the, the heavier, heavy nickels, then you could go to your Scrooge McDuck uh, vault and you look in there and you could count the heavy nickels and you could, d- you could determine how many normal nickels have been stolen by leprechauns based on the resulting ratio.
2: That's really cool, and I love your analogy, by the way. Uh, but this does highlight the way that even if uh, it turns out that you know deuterated water is not going to extend human lifespans or anything like that, I think deuterium and heavy water will absolutely remain extremely important scientific atoms and molecules for for research because they're a secondary indicator of all kinds of things. You can find out a lot about the world by looking at at, at heavy water content and how it behaves.
0: Yeah, I just wish I could have found a heavy water alien. I really wanted to find some uh, somebody talking about heavy water aliens and heavy water people. So,
2: well, hey, that's that's open field. Somebody uh, somebody set up a homestead there.
0: Yeah, yeah, somebody write about it. Now, the, uh, one thing that is kind of related to all this in science fiction is that uh, you have had uh, some, si- some, uh, some science fiction writers who have dealt with uh, various proposed alternate versions of water. So author and National Geographic journalist Robert C. O'Brien, who lived 1918 through 1973, uh, m- most famous as being the author of Miss Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, oh. wrote a 1972 novel titled A Report from Group 17. And it has a lot to do with Nazi plots and uh, a form of water that essentially brainwashes individuals. So heavy water apparently might have played a role in this idea, along with this concept of poly water. This was a, a hypothesized uh, uh, polymerized form of water that would have been kind of like a syrup, you know, again mm. more viscous. <laughs> It doesn't actually exist, uh, but it also influenced the idea of it. Also influenced uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Ice Nine concept in Cat's Cradle.
2: Oh yeah, and for those not familiar, Ice Nine, one of the great plot devices of all time. It's a it's a an alternate form of the water molecule that freezes at room temperature, and it can act as a seed crystal. So basically, the, the premise is you drop this in a lake, and suddenly the entire lake will
0: freeze at room temperature. Hmm. It's it's bad. It's bad and it doesn't exist. Uh Unlike heavy water, which is which does exist and is in you right now. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Um, It's weird how reading
2: about this uh, and I I keep thinking about heavy water holding these uh, opposing ideas in my head at the same time. I guess it's like an exercise in scientific negative capability because I keep thinking of heavy water simultaneously as something that's natural, found in all the oceans of the world. It's in your body right now. It's going to be harmless at the levels that you ingest it, but also is like a horrific poison if, you know, if ingested in the wrong way.
0: Yeah. I mean, of course, we we often have to think about that in, in terms of a lot of different things, including just normal water. Right. I mean, um, as well as, like, various household spices, um, you know, moderation in all things, right? I mean, that's what holds the world together, holds our bodies together, just dealing with a, without any, you know, uh, know, ethical interpretations of the statement, like, there is a, there is a balance, there is a chemical balance in all things, and that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of one of the big take-homes of the chemical revolution, in addition to, you know, developing all these chemicals of life, and then also these chemicals of death uh, during the 20th century, you know, just our, 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 our sudden you know increasing understanding of just all of these little bonds that hold us together
2: yeah extremely good point point. one last thing i'll just say again don't start buying heavy water for life extension unless it's actually backed up by science correct <laughs> check, yes. check the research on that
0: <laughs> all right well uh, again we would love to hear from everyone out there about heavy water if you have any experience with heavy water thoughts on heavy water uh, or indeed have you if you have read science fiction or had any kind of science fiction-based thoughts uh, around heavy water organisms, we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. Uh, We just ask that you might maybe consider rating, uh, reviewing, subscribing. Uh, You know, those are things that... uh, Supposedly help out the show. Mm-hmm. Also, if you go to Mind.com, that'll take you to the iHeart listing for this show. And if you go there, there'll be a button you can click on for our show stuff store, our merch, whatever. And in there, you'll find some shirts with some cool designs, uh, stuff with like our logo on it, but also some recent uh, mythic and monstery designs by some listeners. Uh, there's one in there uh, uh, that has uh, this cool Pandora design, and there very soon should be one that has this kind of leshy design. That I'm excited to see. Ooh,
2: I can't wait to see that one. Anyway, a huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
1: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.
3: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross tiffany cross join me and be a part of sisterhood friendship wisdom and laughter we gather a seasoned elder myself as the middle generation and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had listen to cross generations podcast on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast
1: a rested child is a happy child